listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut. Today, it is Friday, the 6th of May, 2022, and I'm joined here via Zoom by author, speaker, investigative journalist, and podcast creator, Jeff White. And we'll be talking about his recently released book and podcast smash hit on North Korean hackers, The Lazarus Heist. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you all to please leave a review about this podcast wherever you find it. Spotify allows ratings, but not reviews. Apple Podcast allows both. And of course, on YouTube, you can like and subscribe us and share it with lots of people so that more people can find out about our podcast and listen to us. Secondly, check us out on nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. That helps to fund the excellent journalistic work put out by my colleagues every day. Thirdly, follow me and follow, rather, follow NK News on Twitter at nknews.org, one word and myself at JackoZ. For podcast suggestions and feedback, you can tweet at us or email at podcast at nknews.org. All right, my guest today is Jeff White, who's an investigative journalist, author, and podcaster, and broadcaster, working for the BBC, Channel 4 News, The Sunday Times, and many more. In a career spanning 20 years, uh, most recently, he created, co-created and co-presented the Lazarus Heist podcast, uh, and now is author of the book by the same title, Thanks for coming on the show, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Now, your podcast, it was first released a year ago in April 2021 with uh, 10 episodes. Uh, mm-hmm. And you, you start with the Sony Pictures hack around the time of the release of the interview in November 2014. Uh, but from there, you go to the February 2016 Bangladesh Bank cyber heist of one billion US dollars. And then the WannaCry uh, ransomware hack of 2017. Uh, spoiler alert for our listeners, you say that it was all done by a North Korean hacker group called the Lazarus Group, uh, and you'll soon be releasing some new episodes of the Lazarus Heist. So I guess let's start with the name of the group. Where does the name Lazarus Group come from? Is this a name chosen by North Koreans themselves? Uh, no, absolutely not. It's known by various different names, uh, this particular hacker group, and the way it works is technology security companies each come up with their own particular naming protocol for these groups. So they're talking about the same group, but they're all using different names. So ah. Star- Stardust Colima was one of my favorites. Um, Stardust uh, water, sorry? Stardust Colima. Okay. Um, Colima being, I think, the mythical animal uh, in North Korea, the sort of founding mythical animal for North Korea. Ah. Um, APT38, I think Zinc was one of the other names, but I think it was Kaspersky, the Russian security research group, yeah. who, who, who named them Lazarus Group. And, and the reason for the name was that Time after time, Kaspersky had found they thought they'd killed off the hackers mm. and put them to death in the computer networks. Digital death, I should say. Right, not literal death coming. yet, because when not we're talking about death. North Korea, you've always got to be clear. Yeah, <laughs> Indeed, indeed. You, you think you've killed off the hackers uh, digitally, but uh, but they keep coming back at you, just like uh, the Saint Lazarus who, who rose from the dead. So, yeah. so that's where the name, the name comes from and is, and is kind of stuck. Ah, Now, how long has the Lazarus group been active, more or less? That's a very interesting question. Um, security researchers have traced them back to the early 2010s. Um, it's quite difficult to say precisely when, because what happens is a particular target will get hit with a particular set of computer viruses. Those viruses then get used to hit another target, but with slightly different permutations. So it's over time you sort of evolve an attribution to a particular attacker group. Yeah. But we think the early 2010s, uh, some researchers I've spoken to track their attacks back to a set of attacks called the Dark Soul Attacks, which is mm. 2013, which targeted South Korean infrastructure, banks and broadcasters. 
right. uh, and actually briefly took a few of the banks offline in uh, in South Korea. So they, they've got a long and ignominious history, the, yeah. the, the Lazarus Group. You've been looking at cybercrime for almost the same period, over a decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why does this group get your attention in a way that others haven't? What makes it so legendary? It's really interesting. There's North Korea is actually a really bad example in some ways to look at from a cybersecurity point of view, because North Korea, for many, many reasons, is completely idiosyncratic. It's unique in the world. And so its cyber activity is equally unique. All Pretty much all governments now have, have cyber activity. You know, Certainly most developed nations will have a very advanced cyber capability, offensive cyber capability, i.e. they were able to hack into um, adversaries and so on. But most of those government hackers, they're not trying to get hold of cash because, you know, they work for the government. That's not really their aim. They're looking for strategic advantage and information and so on. Mm. The allegations against North Korea is that this country is is hacking for cash, partly because of the sanctions that surround North Korea as well. Your listeners will know to do with their nuclear missile tests. Having struggled for money, they've turned to cybercrime to fill the government's coffers. Now, what's interesting about that is, I say, it's, it's not very common around the world that government hackers are going after cash. But what that forces North Korea's hackers into, allegedly, is, is increasing collaboration with the organized cybercrime and indeed organized street level crime industries. And the reason North Korea is actually a great example to look at from that point of view is that more and more government hackers are working together with organized cybercrime, at the very minimum, using organized cybercrime tools but increasingly using organized cybercrime infrastructure to, to, to move money around and to move resources around and to get into networks and so on. So North Korea is plowing a furrow mm. that I think we're going to see more and more people uh, following. In fact, near the end of episode 10 of your uh, of season one of your podcast, one of your interview subjects summarized it all as by saying governments hacking each other and everyone getting caught in the middle of that. Is that what this all boils down to, Jeff? depressingly yes i'd actually forgotten that quote until you reminded (laughs) me of it just now yeah and the reason look the reason this this confluence between government hackers and cybercrime is so important and so dangerous is because you've got to realize the the organized cybercrime model is is what i call the superman 2 model if you've seen the movie uh a lot of people haven't but if you've seen the movie it stars richard Pryor, and he, he plays this bank executive this bank worker who discovers oh, this is the, the, uh, the old Superman movies from the 1980s. The old Superman, yes, the old, yeah, old, old one. Right. Christopher Reeve um, plays Superman, of course. So you've got this, this, this bank worker who discovers that the bank is writing off the fractions of a cent at the end of every transaction. So he uh-huh. creates a computer program that harvests them all and makes millions. That is the model of organized cybercrime. You hit millions of targets for a small amount right. and you make millions. Now, if you put that together with nation-state hackers who are stealthy, targeted and have a huge amount of resources, what you get is a situation where anyone around the world, any business, indeed any individual, can end up getting hit by a nation state cyber attack because the nation states are using the kind of hit them and hope, spray and pray tactics of the organized cybercrime gangs. So there's an attack uh, about a year ago or so at the end of last year, rather called SolarWinds. SolarWinds hit, I think, 18,000 different businesses. Did the Government hackers who were behind it want to hit 18,000 businesses? No, they wanted to hit a few hundred that were connected to the US government. Right. But they hit thousands of others to find a way in. So it's a spray and pray approach. Hit them all and, and sort them out later. Now, the uh, American cybersecurity firm Mandiant put out a blog post in March this year called Not So Lazarus Mapping DPRK Cyber Threat Groups to Government Organizations, in mm. which it lists four 
different organizations that it says uh, are based in North Korea and involved in cybercrime. And that's the, mm. uh, the United Front Department, the Ministry of State Security, and the Reconnaissance General Bureau's Third Bureau and Fifth Bureau. It, a lot of bureaus in there. Uh, now, in that blog post, uh, Mandiant says, uh, quote, open source reporting often uses the Lazarus Group title as an umbrella term referring to numerous North Korean cyber operators. Uh, would you cop to that? Is, uh, is Lazarus an umbrella term that oversimplifies the different labs and agencies involved? And does it matter? Yeah, look, I think I'd throw my hands up and say guilty as charged on that. And obviously, Mandiant have done a huge amount of work, uh, along with other security research companies, on, on the different threat actors and categorizing them and so on. Look, frankly, the Lazarus Group is an identifiable name. It's a somewhat cool name, hmm. uh, and it's certainly a good title for a podcast, I think it's fair to say, and, and indeed a book. Yes. It, we're under no illusions that there are multiple different groups within the North Korean government doing hacking, in the same way that the UK and the US has multiple different arms of its, its, its military and intelligence communities that carry out hacking. I don't think it is really very helpful for the listener, frankly, to go into the minutiae of that. Hmm. I, I just don't think saying, oh, this particular group does these types of hacks yeah. For a start, that's confusing for listeners, and that's part of my job is to make things less confusing, not more. But also, over the years, I've seen the different reporting on different arms of North Korea's government hackers and what they're alleged to have done and what they allegedly focus on. And it's not entirely clear. I don't think there's, a, there's an accepted orthodoxy of which groups do what. I think different security research companies have their own view, but there's a certain sense it gets into sort of tea leaf gazing at a certain point of, you know, uh, navel gazing, I think may, might be the phrase. Mm. It's, it's just not really for us to kind of make those distinctions. I don't think it's helpful for the listener. I don't think it's hugely, uh, hugely illuminative, really, beyond, beyond the activity that we expose. And is there any evidence that the different groups compete against each other or that they, uh, that, that different members sort of, you know, uh, go from group to group or that the group sometimes reform or split? Yes, there's, there's definitely been instances, I think, when security researchers have found an infection that they track back to an alleged North Korean group, they will find other ones by different arms of the same group. So yes, it's possible that Lazarus Group, in all its different permutations and colourful, weird and colourful names, yeah. potentially hack the same target. We have seen a precursor to that, actually. I mean, the 2016 US presidential election, um, obviously attackers hacked into the Democrats' uh, political networks and, and computer networks. And we saw in that case two allegedly Russian government allied hacker groups simultaneously inside the Democrats' networks. Uh -huh. Now, having read around that and, and the workings of Russian politics, the sense was that the Russian government tries to keep the different intelligence agencies on their toes by playing them off against each other. Yeah. So it's perfectly possible that, you know, Group A would not have known that Group B was inside the same network, but they were both being sort of tasked with that to see who came out with the goods to put them in competition with each other. I don't know whether that's the case in North Korea, um, but that's certainly a precedent for, you know, two government agencies trying to hack into the same target. That's not without precedent. So it's a kind of survival of the fittest, perhaps. It, this certainly was in the Russian case was, was the reading that I did. And, yeah. and given how North Korea runs and the militaristic society that, that, that it is, it wouldn't surprise me if that was the case. But but. Obviously, we, we don't have that level of insight, or I don't have that level of insight into, into how they run the hacker groups. Right. Now, uh, going back to the, the start of, the, uh, of your podcast there, the Sony Pictures was, the ta was a target uh, because of the movie, the interview, wasn't it? Exactly, yes, yeah. yeah. And with regard to the, the, the volume of the hacked emails that was released by the hackers to, uh, to journalists, does that suggest that there was someone 
working with them with an understanding of American film and culture, helping to decide what to release? Or did they simply just release everything regardless of its value? No, there was definitely some understanding around what was released from Sony, the hacked material that was released from Sony and when. What was incredible about that campaign, and, and I'm saying this in hindsight because mm. I didn't fully absorb this at the time, you know, I was covering the, the Sony hack, was the the very smart PR campaign that went on around the hacked data. Because one option, once you hack all these 30,000 emails, I think it was from Sony, yeah. it's just dump them all, all online, stick them all online, let people search for them and so on. That's not what the hackers did. They, they divided them up into eight chunks of material. And the way they released those chunks of material built up to a crescendo in the way that a PR company would run a PR campaign or marketing campaign in the way that I, as a journalist, might, you know, line yeah. up several stories in a row to, to build interest. And, and the crescendo to this set of leaks, this building of leaks that they were putting out was going to be the decapitation career-wise of the two senior people at Sony Pictures Entertainment, Amy Pascal and Michael Linton. Uh, Amy Pascal did lose her job, did, ha- did, did resign in the wake of this. Michael Linton didn't for various sort of complex timing reasons. But, but the hackers clearly had a goal, had a target in sight, understood exactly which emails would achieve that target and staged the release of them. It was, it was really astonishing in hindsight. That is quite savvy. I mean, that's, that's a, a different level of hacking above just the technical prowess to get into and, and to, to steal all that stuff is, is to actually you know, decide how to divide it up and, and how to send it out. And, that, and yeah. that makes me wonder whether, whether there was an outsider working with them. It's a very good question. It's a very good question. I guess you don't have to have that much help to understand, well, these are the people who run Sony Pictures Entertainment. Mm. How do we get them? Well, we'll release their emails as, as the peak of this crescendo, of, uh, of the peak of this run of, of leaks. So yeah. it, w- it would have helped them to have somebody helping them outside who understood how the thing works, but I don't think you necessarily needed that. But the other thing that was really impressive about this, I just want to throw in that I keep thinking about, was one of the ways they tried to get into Sony and hack into Sony was by targeting people who had worked on the film, The Interview, mm-hmm. um, and target them with sort of salacious links, you know, nude photos of celebrities, ah. click here, you know. Now, what was interesting about that was it came off the back of a thing called The Fappening, which was a leak of celebrities' intimate photographs that had come a few months earlier. So clearly, whoever was targeting Sony had their finger very much on the pulse yeah. of what was going on. I'd be stunned if, if the leak of celebrities' nude photographs got widely reported in North Korea. Right. But but clearly the hackers who tried to hack into Sony had seen that, understood it, understood that was how you get people to click on a link right. and, and used that or attempted to use it as one of the ways into the uh, into the organization. Now, almost eight years after that uh, hack, um, what have been the long term effects on Sony Pictures, apart from the, uh, the resignation of one of the CEOs you mentioned earlier? Long term, I think Sony has has weathered the storm. It was certainly very, very unpleasant at the time. As you say, some senior people left the organization. They've been making layoffs during that year in 2014 anyway. So there's mm. a sense that North Korea, yes, sorry, there's a sense that Sony, even before the North Korean alleged attack, w- was, was trying to steady the ship. But one thing I did hear about is that um, uh, Sony sort of instituted a system whereby um, only the most recent emails are now kept. So mm. they only keep the last year's worth of emails. So, you know, frankly, from a logistical point of view, yeah. your ability as a Sony employee, if that's correct, to go back. Yeah. through your emails and find something you sent three years ago, well, that's, that's not going to be there anymore. So, so, yeah. so we have made some, some, some security strides. And those security strides, you know, could be a bit of an inconvenience to their employees, if, if what I'm hearing is correct. And has the movie, the interview, stood the, uh, the test of history uh, as well? 
<laughs> well, I actually watched it. I watched it. Um, I hadn't seen it in fairness at the time, but I, I did watch it. I think it's an okay film. I, I quite enjoyed it. My co-host for the podcast, Jean Lee, disagrees. She doesn't like the film, but um, yeah. actually, I mean, that film made when it was eventually released, it was released online and in a limited number of non-mainstream cinemas. And the uh, opening weekend profits it made matched almost exactly the amount of money Sony had to put aside mm. to remediate the attack. So there's a bit of an irony there that they 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 made back on the film pretty much to the dollar what they what they had to spend solving the hack. That is ironic. Uh, now turning to the uh, the Bangladesh Bank, why did that become a target? The obvious answer is banks have money. You know is that that classic quote. Uh, you know why do you want banks? It's where the money is. Right. The Bangladesh Bank wasn't the only bank targeted by the North, allegedly targeted by the North Korean hacking group. There were lots and lots of different banks around the world, you know, places like Vietnam, Chile, uh, and so on. These weren't, they weren't targeting top tier banks in Frankfurt and London, New York. They tended to target banks in lesser developed countries. And obviously Bangladesh Bank was one of those. And what the hackers discovered was that Bangladesh Bank had a US dollar account. Mm -hmm. So if it wanted to pay someone in dollars, it could just pay them from the US dollar account. And that had a billion dollars in it. And so that's what the hackers went after. But it, it would be wrong, I think, to say that Bangladesh Bank was, in inverted commas, targeted. Mm. It was one of a slew of banks that were hit right. um, around the same time and, and, and subsequently by this same attacker group. And then there was quite a, a complex process of, uh, of laundering the money that, that North Korea had to go through to convert that stolen money into cash, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, I mean, it, in a way, hacking, whilst it's technically very complex and you need a lot of skill to do it, it's quite basic you know you, you you hack in you get access to the to the software that, that controls the money and you tell the software will transfer the money you know get, that that's that's how hacking works right. what you've then got to do is work out well where am i going to transfer the money to you know if, if it is north korea behind it you can't transfer it to you know kim jong-un's bank account in pyongyang you've got to move the money around and wash it and launder it so that you've hacked into bangladesh bank obviously in dhaka capital of bangladesh the money's held in new york you're transferring the money out. Where are you going to transfer it to? Well, in this case, they chose bank accounts in the Philippines, yeah. which they'd set up in readiness for this. They then moved the money around those bank accounts into different bank accounts. Then they moved it into a money-changing firm in the Philippines who changed it into cash, mm -hmm. like, you know, kilos and kilos, like half a ton of cash, basically. Wow. That, get, that get, then gets shipped into casinos in the Philippines and gambled across the tables in the Philippines casinos uh, as chips. And the whole point of this, of course, is to muddy the trail of money from the original bank account to the recipients and put off investigators and deter their attempts to trace it down. I mean, at one point you had the bizarre situation where Bangladesh bank officials were in Manila in the mm. Philippines. They knew what had happened to the money. They knew where it had gone. They knew which casinos it was in. But the casinos, because they weren't regulated at that time by money laundering regs, mm. said, well, this looks like a legit customer to us. They've come in with their money and they're entitled to spend it. So Bangladesh ah. Bank almost, you could almost imagine looking in the windows of the casino and seeing the money going across the table, but just not being able to do anything about it. It was, it was astonishing, a really astonishing laundering campaign. Gee, and do we have any idea of how much cash North Korea actually got out of that uh, at the end of the day, after all the, the fees and, and whatnot, uh, all the laundering had been taken out? Well, yes, that's a that's a, a really good question. Um, the initial target was nine hundred and fifty one million dollars. Mm. Now, through a bizarre coincidence, a lot of those tra transfers, a lot of those transactions that the uh, North Koreans allegedly tried to do to transfer out that money got turned down. The reason being the bank that I mentioned in the Philippines to which they transferred the money was in Jupiter Street. And they could have picked any any other bank. There's loads of other banks in, in Manila they could have picked. Yeah. 
that one cost them hundreds of millions of dollars because Jupiter was the name of a sanctioned Iranian shipping vessel. Ah. And so anything to do with sanctions... By complete coincidence. Exactly, complete coincidence. So when the New York Fed, which was where the New York bank account was kept for Bangladesh, when they discovered, when they saw the word Jupiter, the alarm bells, the automatic alarm bells rang, oh, it's Jupiter, you know, query these transactions. So hundreds of millions of of that money, those transfers got turned down and got rejected. So $81 million makes its way through to the Philippines. What we know then is $30 million of it was paid to a guy called Wei Kang Zhu, a Chinese national who just <laughs> disappeared with it, seems to wow. have just left the country. $51 million What was left. his role in that uh, operation? We don't know is the answer. Very little is ah. known about Wei Kang Zhu other than that he was the recipient of $30 million and left the country. Yeah. Even to the point where, where, where the Philippines said, well, there must have been a record of him leaving. You know, Does immigration have a record of this chap leaving the country? Nope, right. <laughs> no record oh, wow. of that. So he literally fades into the background. Yeah. The remaining 51 million goes to the casinos, gets gambled across the tables. Yeah. Obviously, you've got to have accomplices for that. People are going to do the gambling. People are going to move the money. They've all got to be paid off. The money we, we think then moves to Macau because a couple of the people who are involved in setting up those gambling jaunts were linked to Macau, and the companies organizing the gambling joints also linked to Macau. So we think the money ends up in Macau. Yeah. So really, of the billion-dollar sort of heist that uh, North Korea is accused of, of trying to launch at the beginning of this, you end up really with a few tens of millions of dollars. Not terrible, it's still tens of millions of dollars, yeah. but nowhere near the billion dollars they initially tried to get out. No, gosh. Wow. And then in the last episode of Season 1, in Episode 10, you focus on the May 2017 WannaCry ransomware hack. Tell us what that was and, and how it worked. Yeah, well, this was, um, again, another incredible sort of chapter in the story and another incredible cyber incident. Um, WannaCry was ransomware, which I'm sure many of your listeners will have heard of. Very simply, a computer hacker scrambles your files, hacks into your computer, scrambles your files, and then charges you a ransom to get them back, usually paid in Bitcoin. Very easy to explain. It's, it's, it's extortion, pure and simple. Mm. The problem has always been, how, again, go back to the sort of, Superman 2 analogy, how do you get enough victims to make it worth your while to do this? You have to email loads of people with dodgy viruses and links and get them to download the virus and so on. What made WannaCry different was that it was automatically spreading. It automatically spread from computer to computer and automatically detonated. So you no longer had to email loads of people and convince them to click a link. You could just unleash this virus and it just went on its own. It's a worm virus that went around the world. And it was hundreds of thousands of computers it infected. And the estimates, the damage range from four to eight billion. I mean, it's, it's, it was a huge campaign. Wow. Now, the interesting thing is, well, how, do you, how do you get a virus that spreads itself and detonates itself automatically? That's like quite an advanced computer virus. Mm. Well, the US government can be thanked for that. Oh. The National Security Agency discovered a flaw in Windows computers that allowed this virus to spread kept hold of it because presumably America wanted to use it to hack into other countries, I presume. But then that, that, that tool, that virus tool leaked out onto the cyber underground in mid 2017 and was gathered up by a group, the Lazarus group, allegedly North Korea's government hackers who used it to combine with ransomware to create a self-spreading, self-detonating ransomware campaign. And that's what WannaCry was. Went around the world um, in 24 hours, it infected computers in pretty much every every country, every country that's connected to the internet, and was shutting down computers with 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 ease. And, and in the UK, the NHS, being one of the world's biggest employers, and also having a huge amount of computers, 
um, was particularly badly hit. I mean, accident and emergency departments had to close and send people elsewhere. Wow. You know, ur urgent cancer cases got deferred. It was, it was, it played merry hell within the UK, within the health system here. Yeah. And do we know how much money North Korea got out of that? Uh, not much. It's the honest answer. Um, you're looking at about a million dollars, something like that. I mean, mm. again, not, as my mom would say, better than, better than a poke in the eye with a sharp stick. Right. No, but a lot less than the, uh, than the total value of the damage that was done. Oh, yeah, yeah. And absolutely. And, and loads less than other ransomware gangs have made. I mean, one ransomware gang with one strain of ransomware made $350 million in a month. Wow. So, so North Korea's income from this was, was pretty rubbish. The reason for that was a couple of things. Number one, Usually the incentive to pay the ransom is you'll get your data back. In the WannaCry attack, people who paid the ransom didn't get their data back. So immediately mm. you've disincentivized anyone from making a, a, you know, a payment. Yeah. Second thing was that there was this bizarre side story where uh, a young computer researcher in the UK discovered the off switch behind the WannaCry virus. <laughs> so there was a, embedded within it was, a, was an off switch, which he managed to trigger um, quite easily, actually, he just registered a website and triggered the off switch. So WannaCry sort of came to a stumbling halt. So yes, it, it broke out, went around the world extremely quickly, but the fire went out for it very quickly as well. But I will say, I don't think the WannaCry virus was necessarily all about making money. Mm. There were other objectives, if indeed it was North Korea behind this. Obviously, frankly, cyber, cyber bullying, cyber intimidation. You've, you've suddenly shut down hospital departments in the UK. That's a pretty amazing strike to have done on your opponents, your enemies. Yeah. But also, I think what WannaCry did was taught North Korea a lot about cryptocurrency and how to launder that money. Because compared to the situation I described in the Philippines with mm. gamblers and casinos and cash and all that kind of thing, the WannaCry money was laundered in something like 48 hours, and it's never been seen again. So ah. much easier to launder crypto than it is to launder the cash from someone like Bangladesh. So, yeah, so that was my next question, is that does stealing cryptocurrency make it easier to use than fiat money? Uh, yes and no is the answer to that, um, which sounds like a sort of classic politician's answer. But <laughs> yes, in that, you don't have to use the traditional banking system. So, for example, in the Bangladesh case, they had to transfer the money into these accounts in the Philippines. Well, that means you have to have an account number. You have to have a record of how that account was set up. So the traditional financial system keeps records of people and accounts. So when you use the traditional financial system for laundering, you're at the risk of those links being traced down and the money being clawed back and recovered. In the cryptocurrency world, there is not no such oversight in a lot of cases. You can set up a new cryptocurrency wallet with the click of a mouse. Yeah. Um, and whilst a lot of cryptocurrency exchanges, which is where you can change your pounds and dollars for Bitcoin, etc., a lot of them are doing checks on customers, so-called know your customer checks, where mm. you have to provide ID and so on. Some aren't. And it's often possible to circumvent some of those checks as well. So it's a lot easier for hackers, frankly, to set up the, the accounts to launder the money and to you know, whiz the money around through loads and loads of different accounts, which is what we see them doing to kind of avoid pursuit. So yeah, cryptocurrency is a lot easier to move. However, cryptocurrency is all traceable. One of the reasons cryptocurrency works is that it has a, a publicly available ledger mm. of every cryptocurrency transaction which may seem weird because it's like, oh, I, th I thought cryptocurrency was anonymous. Well, it is. You can see the transactions moving around. You can't see that Jeff sent Jacko some money, but you can see that some money moved from this wallet to that wallet. And, and that blockchain, as it's called, is the underpinning of cryptocurrency. It's why cryptocurrency works. So when someone like North Korea hacks a cryptocurrency exchange, steals money, that money is easy to move, but also easy to trace. 
So you've now got the bizarre situation where North Korean hackers are alleged to be sitting on something like $1.3 billion worth of cryptocurrency. Mm. But every time they try and move it and convert it into pounds and dollars and so on, there is an army of people who are tracing every step they take and mm. trying to get ahead of them and trying to get the money back. So it's a sort of poison chalice, the cryptocurrency. Gosh, how sure are we that WannaCry was done by the North Korean hackers? The US government put out a 179-page criminal indictment, criminal complaint against an individual called Pak Jin-hyok, who they allege was a key member of the Lazarus Group uh, hackers, the North Korean government hacking group. In that document, they go through in quite forensic detail what they allege are the links between the different attacks. In the WannaCry attack, there was a, within the code, embedded within the code, was a, a data table um, for the encryption. So they had to use some particular bits of data to make the encryption happen, to scramble people's files effectively so they could ransom them. The information in that data table links back to other information that was in the viruses used to attack Sony and uh. some of the other banks. So forensically, the US are thinking, well, hang on, it's be a hell of a coincidence, wouldn't it, if, if randomly in a bit of code, some data turns up in all of these attacks that all seem to be motivated by North Korea. They're pretty sure it's the same group and the US government are sure it's, 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 uh, it's North Korean. Are there other signature features that uh, the various hacking attempts by North Korea's hackers have in common? Yeah, uh, again, the, the indictment of the criminal complaint against Pak jin Hyok is quite useful in that respect, but also the other research that's been done by security research groups and, uh, and indeed uh, cryptocurrency analysis firms who are obviously now weighing into this quite a lot. There's multiple, sort of, there's multiple levels of attribution, multiple ways of attribution. So as I say, one of them is to look at the code and say, look, this particular you know, computer virus code has been used in multiple occasions by, we think, the same group. It, you know, it's the same group. The problem with that is, well, maybe another hacker group got hold of the virus and downloaded mm. it and is using it as a sort of false flag operation to pretend to be, you know, a different hacking group. Yeah. So that is, is, is a reasonable attribution, but not 100% bulletproof. The other option is uh, IP addresses. So what the US again alleges is that different bits of the viruses used to hack into Sony, for example, were controlled and manipulated by computers using particular IP addresses that track back to North Korea. But again, you could look at that and think, well, maybe somebody's somehow hacked into a computer in North Korea and is using that as a, as a jumping off point to manipulate these viruses to put North Korea in the frame. So mm. that's attribution, but not 100% solid. With the cryptocurrency stuff, the, the wallets they use, the cryptocurrency wallets they use are repeated. They use the same wallets in the same methodology and so on to, to, to launder this money in cryptocurrency land. Well, again, you could argue, well, you know, maybe they maybe they gave their cryptocurrency wallets to somebody else, or maybe, yeah. they, you know, these wallets get reused by different crime gangs. None of the individual methods of attribution, I think, is 100% bulletproof. Mm. But when you put them all together, you get to the point where, you know, using Occam's razor, you've got to come up with a different explanation for how all of those you know, 95% attributions can all line up together. Uh, and, and the more you build on those attributions and the more behavior you see that you attribute to North Korea, the harder it is to come up with an alternative explanation for who else it could be other than North Korea. So that's what mm -hmm. I sort of say on the, on the attribution front. Is, um, do we see signs that North Korea is, is active on the dark web where all the, uh, the drug lords and the hitmen for hire hang out? It's a really good question, actually. It's one of the things we've been looking at in, in series two of The Lazarus Heist uh, with my co-host, Gene Lee. One of the things about North Korea, is, is, is the allegations against it, is that it's been pushed into more and more alliances with not just organised cybercrime, but frankly, just organised street-level crime. Um, if you're going to start trying to pull out money and launder it, 
you know, in the ways that I've described in casinos in the Philippines and so on, but but also, you know, on the streets of the US, you need collaborators, you need mm. accomplices. And the obvious place to find those, as you pointed out, is, is the so-called dark web. So one of the cases we've been looking into is the conviction of a Canadian man called Galeb Alamawi, who was convicted for having helped hackers cash out uh, money from cash points. And the accusation of the US government is those hackers were the North Korean Lazarus group. So the question is, well, how does the... <laughs> How does the North Korean Lazarus group end up finding this dude, Galeb, who's living yes. in Canada and is running around cash points with drawing money, you know, with dodgy cards? Well, the evidence we started to accumulate points to the fact that it was on the dark web. We know from the US criminal complaint that, that, that the, hacker, the, the North Korean hackers were active on things like hack forums, which is a, a hacker's, as the name would suggest, a hacker's forum. Yeah. And we know that Galeb Alamari was on those sites as well. So our assumption is that that's where they found him. And that's where they made the linkages. Now, whether Galeb knew that it was North Korea who'd contacted him and said, can you help us out? I suspect not. I suspect mm. the North Koreans would have been using uh, false names and, and, and pseudonyms on those forms, as do lots of other people, by the way. So, so whether he knew he was in, in, in with that group, I don't know. But that's, that's certainly where the connections get made. It's what I describe as the, um, uh, as the Moss Eisley space bar of uh, cyberspace. You know, the, the Star Wars bit where all the creatures hang out and where yeah. Obi-Wan Kenobi and Luke Skywalker go to meet Han Solo. It's, it's that sort of environment. You know, you go to these forums and... You, you can meet all sorts of dodgy, interesting people with 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 things to offer you. And someone gets an arm cut off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Did hands shoot first? Yeah. Where does uh, the American Virgil Griffith fit into this? Yeah, he was convicted recently of a conspiracy to violate the International Emergency Economic Powers Act in the U.S. and given a sentence of sixty-three months imprisonment and a fine of hundred thousand dollars, all for what traveling to North Korea and showing them how to do a Bitcoin transaction. Yes, yeah, the Virgil Griffith case is a fascinating one, um, and one that we will be covering, I think, quite extensively in Series 2 of the podcast. N North Korea, uh, interested in cryptocurrency, clearly. The downside of that is the accusations, obviously, against them in terms of WannaCry and lots of other cryptocurrency hacks and attacks that they're accused of carrying out. In 2019, the country decides it's going to hold a cryptocurrency conference, wants to invite people to the country to talk about this. One of the people who um, accepts that invitation is Virgil Griffith, um, a US citizen who I think at the time was living in Singapore, makes extensive attempts to, to, to get his visa for North Korea. Um, obviously not, not easy being a US citizen. Yeah. He pitches up in town. The testimony we've heard from other people who attended that cryptocurrency conference was that it was pretty ramshackle. Uh, mm. uh, the attendees remember being sort of told, well, what, what are you all going to speak about? You know, the, the, they had sort of cobbled together talks to give, you know, some of the attendees on the North Korean side were sort of falling asleep in the audience um, as they're doing it. And, and the, some of the people we've spoken to seem to suggest that rather than being a cryptocurrency conference, this is an attempt to get foreigners who had tech expertise into North Korea so they could be matched up with sort of North Korean companies to mm. you know, work on projects together. So the whole thing was, was a, a tad strange. But Virgil Griffith was very keen on visiting North Korea and so went in there. It's uh, alleged, and, and he has been convicted, for this, that, that whilst there, he was giving North Korea all sorts of tips on cryptocurrency and how this could be uh, used to evade sanctions, uh, which obviously on the country under the United Nations. Was he actually telling them stuff that they didn't know? Because, I mean, we've already seen that they're pretty good at evading sanctions and, uh, and stealing cryptocurrency. Well, this is what confuses me, uh, confuses me about the Virgil Griffith case, is, is that the accusation from the US government seems to be that Virgil Griffith went across to North Korea and sort of showed them how to use crypto. Mm -hmm. And yet the same... American government is saying that North Korea had been involved in cryptocurrency theft and laundering since at least 2017 and a little yeah. bit before. 
So they didn't really need to wait till 2019 for Virgil Griffith to go over there to show them what to do. The second thing I'd say is the whole point of cryptocurrency is it's open source. Mm. This is a currency that needs to be open source because it isn't controlled by any government. So everybody needs to be able to understand how to use it and to be able to audit the code that sits behind it. Uh, you know, North Koreans, a lot of them don't have access to the internet, but the senior levels do and their techies clearly do. You know, it's not like Virgil Griffith revealed to them some secret arcane knowledge. They could just Google it and find out a lot of yeah. the stuff about cryptocurrency. Um, so I do find the conviction perplexing. However, you know, the US government has a law in place that prevents people, you know, assisting North Korea to evade sanctions. That is its law. And according to the conviction of Virgil Griffith, he breached that law. He got mm. convicted uh, and received a very hefty sentence as a result. North Korea has also charged a couple of other people in connection with that uh, now. So that story keeps rolling on. Wait, you mean the United States has? Exactly, yes, yeah. Yeah, so this is uh, the, the conviction with the fine and the, the imprisonment. Do you think it's there just to, to sort of make an example of Virgil and to uh, scare anybody else off? That certainly is the opinion that a couple of people we've spoken to who in the cryptocurrency community feel, that they feel that this is a shot across everybody's bows to say, mm. do not go there, do, do, do not even think about helping out this country. Yeah, that it was, it was, it was a shot across people's bows. Yeah. yeah, particularly given given that the, the cyber activity from North Korea over the past few years, the sort of trajectory has been towards cryptocurrency thefts. Right. And if you add all of those up, it apparently adds up to $1.3 billion. It's a huge amount of money. So mm. you can also see why the US government wants to say to people, if you're in the crypto community, do not get close to North Korea. They don't want, I suspect, North Korea to have any more cryptocurrency knowledge that, that, right. that needs to. The cryptocurrency community's response to that in yeah. certain quarters would be, well, Everybody deserves cryptocurrency knowledge. We don't we don't cut off anybody from this mm. because th that's the point of cryptocurrency. It's a democratic currency that everybody can use. Why should North Korea have any uh, be excluded from that any more than anybody else? That, yeah. that might be their argument. Is there evidence that North Korea sets up and runs uh, hacking labs outside North Korea to do its work? Yes, I think it's fair to say there's, there's quite a lot of evidence about that. Um, one of the things we cover in series one of the podcast, and we'll be returning to actually in series two, is this propensity for North Korean hackers to pitch up, according to the accusations against it, in foreign countries, notably China, obviously very yep. close to North Korea, just over the border. And there's a few good reasons for that. There's some technical, technically good reasons. North Korea doesn't have a huge amount of links to the outside world, to, to the internet. And those links, those IP addresses and links are very heavily surveilled by the world's intelligence agencies. So hopping over the border and hiding among the crowd, if you like, of mm. China's millions of IP addresses, possibly billions, makes a lot of sense. But the other thing you do when you leave North Korea and you work in somewhere like that is, is you're so much more connected to the outside world and to internet society. So going back to the example I talked about earlier of the, the phishing emails that were sent to Sony, you know, this promise of nude celebrities' photos mm. and salacious offers, well, if you're mixing in internet society and if you're outside North Korea and you're able to just see how things run in the West a bit more easily, you're going to be so much better at those social engineering campaigns, and those phishing campaigns. You, you kind of need to understand how your enemy thinks mm. in order to hack it. And that's going to be a lot easier the closer you are to your enemy. Right. Are there other countries following the lead of North Korea and setting up hackers, little armies of hackers to, uh, to serve its uh, state interests? Yes, frankly. And the reason for that is quite clear. If you look at the amount you have to spend on tanks and bombs and guns and so on, mm. and you look at the investment you have to make in hackers, economically, hackers make a lot more sense as a, as a, as a governmental weapon. <laughs> yeah. you know, and also there is palpable deniability. You know, if, if you're 
if you're good at hiding your tracks and if you're good at covering uh, the traces, you can carry out a nation state cyber attack. And it's very, very difficult for the victim to sort of turn around and say, well, this was the government of X country, you know, hacking. And then again, to go back to my earlier point, is the worrying thing about government hackers uh, connecting with and working with and through cybercrime gang, organized cybercrime gangs. Mm. Your ability to attribute this gets harder and harder. So there's there's one cybercrime tool that's being used en masse at the moment. It's a tool called Cobalt Strike. Uh-huh. It's a piece of software that allows hackers into different computer networks. Loads and loads of people are using Cobalt Strike. Now, previously, if you got a Cobalt Strike infection on your network, you could say, oh, well, I think it's this particular group over here. These days, Cobalt Strike could be anybody, could be mm. any government around the world. So your, your attribution starts to diminish. And that has consequences. You know, your, the US government certainly has been able to attribute in their eyes attacks to North Korea, put out indictments, make accusations and blow the lid in, in, in this government's opinion. If, if you start working to organize cybercrime, you get to the point where attacks can just happen and no one ever gets blamed in the end for it. It's quite yeah. a frightening situation. I saw a headline this morning in the news that uh, South Korea has joined the NATO Cooperative Cyber Defense Center of Excellence based in, mm. uh, in Estonia. Is this probably because of North Korea's hacking attempts, do you think? That's got to be part of it. I mean, of all countries around the world, I think it's fair to say South Korea is, is, is in, has been in the firing line of, of North Korean attacks mm. for, for, for many years. And the 2013 Dark Soul attacks I talked about were, were firmly targeted at South Korea, that the intelligence folks there will tell you that they were under one sort of constant attack because obviously North Korea and South Korea are still technically at war. You know, a truce was declared, but a peace deal wasn't signed. So, so you know, the cyber end of that conflict uh, uh, goes on. But, but I have to say, generally speaking, the centre in Tallinn in Estonia, the, 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 the NATO cyber defence um, organisation, is just trying to pull in as many people as it can, mm-hmm. I suspect, because there's, there's strength in numbers, but there's also the, the more intelligence you get and the more, comp- the more countries, uh, intelligence agencies sign up to that, the more information that centre in Tallinn gets. And that information can be used by different countries around the world. Look, stuff that stuff that works in Korea, South Korea today for a hacker, mm-hmm. they will try in the UK and the US tomorrow. So if you can get information from South Korea about what they're seeing, you can use that to defend other people's networks from the same stuff. So you get a kind of network effect, uh, mm. sort of strength in numbers. And that's why it's important, or that's why it's valuable to have non-NATO members joining as well, I suppose. I suspect so, yeah, yeah. What can targets and potential targets do to protect themselves from North Korean cybercrime or attacks? Well, this is, I suppose, where a bit of the good news comes in. I mean, having covered these various different attacks that have been attributed to North Korea for so many years, the MO is is depressingly familiar. If you look at Sony, if you look at Bangladesh Bank, the cryptocurrency exchange attacks we've heard about, it's generally phishing emails. They're very well crafted and they're increasingly you know, effective and targeted at individuals. But, but in the vast majority of cases, it's phishing emails and phishing messages. So one of the new tactics is using LinkedIn to connect with people and offer them a job mm. and say, oh, it's a great job for you, perfect job for you, which it is because they've made it up. Yeah. <laughs> and so they've made it perfect. And then the next thing will be, there'll be a WhatsApp conversation, a little chat on WhatsApp to say, mm-hmm. oh, I've got your CV, looks really, really good. I'm going to send you the document so you can see the job spec. You get sent the document and it will have a little thing at the top that says enable content. Mm-hmm. You click the enable content and what you're enabling there is the virus hidden inside that Word document or that spreadsheet or whatever. So, you know, frankly, if you want one lesson to defend yourself, you know, that, that thing on the, on the Internet, one tip to get rid of belly fat, one yeah. tip to stop to stop the hackers is be very careful with, with, with emails and attachments. And even if you open an attachment, 
by by not clicking enable content be very suspicious about that you could prevent yourself being uh, being biased yeah actually i've uh, developed the uh, the habit these days of uh, if i get a whatsapp or a signal or an email with an attachment with no context uh, if i know that person i'm likely to call that person up on the phone and yeah. say hey did you send me something and is this safe yes uh, and of course if you don't know that person you shouldn't be clicking anyway exactly yeah i mean you could you know the other option is send send that person a fresh email yeah. uh, a new email and just say well, i've got an attachment for you is that right the, the danger with that is if if their inbox has been compromised by hackers they yeah. might intercept that email you send and reply saying yeah yeah the attachment's fine so you're right the phone call is you know yeah. you, you're really smart to use that that is the gold standard i think of of confirming that you're not being hacked unless of course i mean this is going into science fiction slightly if they start using voice uh, voice synthesizers and oh, yeah. voice duplicators to duplicate the voice of your friend to say yes the attachment is but i think i don't think we're there yet i think that's a <laughs> well when when that day comes jeff i think they've won there's just no point fighting back <laughs> um are there ways that states like for example south korea and the united states uh, strike back against north korea yes and they're going to be quite cagey about those for obvious reasons so uh, after the Sony attack, there was uh, an internet outage in North Korea because obviously people monitor the, the internet connectivity of North Korea and there are various technical ways to do that. North Korea's internet connection pretty much went down for a few days after the Sony uh, hack. And the allegation, the sort of suspicion among a lot of people was this was some kind of denial of service strike back by the mm. US government on North Korea. The thing about that is North Korea's internet connection is, is I say, pretty slim. And so for it to go out of action for another reason, a sort of technical problem reason rather than a sort of attack is also quite feasible as well. But certainly it, it is within the armories of, of states like the US and South Korea to take offensive action um, if, they, if they feel that's necessary mm. and merited. But as I say, that, that they will be very cagey about that, but I've no doubt that is going on in certain circumstances. Now you and, and Jean Lee, who was previously on the podcast, have got a new season coming out of mm. the Lazarus Heist. Uh, at the end of episode 10 of season one, you said that New episodes would come out later in 2021. Here we are mm. a year later, still waiting. What's the holdup? <laughs> I'm so sorry. We look, good news and bad news. The bad news is, yeah, we 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 didn't get them out for the end of 2021. But the good news is that we thought we we thought we basically put out a few extra episodes. There were some interesting hacks we hadn't covered mm. in series one. Uh, and then stuff happened, which is the thing with this story, it just doesn't stop. I mean, one mm. of the most recent ones, which is astonishing, is the attribution again by the US of North Korean involvement in an attack on a video game, a computer game called Axie Infinity, that resulted in the theft of $625 million. Wow. I, th I think that is the largest amount of money stolen from a single victim in a single attack ever. <clears throat> I can't think, I haven't found of, uh, one that's bigger than that. Over time, other cybercrime gangs have way, made way more than that, but in different yeah. attacks in different places. In a single one-strike attack, I think that's probably the biggest amount of money it's half a billion so that again has happened you know in in the time we've been putting together season two so the good news is we've actually got like we think about eight episodes worth or, or, or thereabouts yeah. of stuff to do an entire new series rather than just a few bonus episodes which is what we were thinking about but apologies we do feel bad about the fact we left people hanging but <laughs> believe me it will be worth it some of the stuff we've got some of the the interviews we've got and the storylines we've got are absolutely astonishing uh, and some of those obviously are reflected in the book that i've written that's going to be out on june 9th so Yes. So who's the victim of that? You mentioned it was one victim in one attack. Who was the victim? The victim was um, uh, was a computer game called Axie Infinity. Oh, so the, the game itself that. had $600 million to lose. Yes. Yes. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't. Yeah. I, how does that even work? How does a game have money? 
Well, it's a very good question. We're going to try and explain this, I think, in, in series two. <laughs> yes. um, look, fundamentally, uh, this game, Axie Infinity, it's a bit like if you imagine a combination of Tamagotchis and WWF. Yeah. So you have these little creatures that you, you know, you, you can buy and then you can train them and groom them and buy stuff for them. And then you, you get these creatures to fight with each other. And if your creature wins, then your creature's a bit more valuable and you can sell it to somebody else and say, do you want to buy my, my Axie so you can win your next battle? So uh -huh. it's, it's a sort of trading platform for these strange creatures. I mean, Jacko, who, who knew that there'd be half a billion dollars worth of money yeah. connected to such a, such a game? I mean, it's just absolutely astonishing. But, um, yeah. but again, that money, I mean, that money is sitting in an Ethereum wallet. This is the cryptocurrency that they, that they, right. that they used. And that Ethereum wallet and that infrastructure is being so closely surveilled. Everybody's all over yeah. that. So as soon as the hackers try and move that money and get away yeah. with it, uh, they, there's going to be people on their tail. So again, one to watch and, and one that we're trying to cover in season two. Uh, congratulations on your uh, nomination for uh, an award with the podcast. Uh, has mm -hmm. that already been announced? It hasn't. This is the, the, the Peabody one. No, it hasn't been yeah. announced. We are on the shortlist. And face stiff competition, it's, it's fair to say. So I'm always... I'm always prosaic about these things. There's some really good nominations in there, but no, really excited by that. Um, yeah, that's uh, a, yeah, a yeah. high honour. Mm. Uh, and you've got a, a, you mentioned the, the book coming out uh, on the night, so it's just a couple of days from now. Uh, is there any material in the book that didn't make it to the podcast? Yeah, there is actually. Um, in series one, the, 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 the story moved on significantly, so I've been able to put a lot of that into the book. Mm. There's a, a, a genuinely bizarre episode which... On the one hand, it's quite compelling, and, and I suppose entertaining might be the word, in terms of how North Korea ends up allegedly working with a, an Instagram influencer living in Dubai to launder mm. some of their money. There's just these amazing twisted tales. But again, what that really highlights is the confluence you've now got between nation-state cybercrime and organised street-level crime, organised mm. fraudsters and money launderers. Um, so, so telling those stories was uh, was was really useful. Um, and the book goes back a little bit in history into the, the Dark Soul attacks, which we didn't cover in mm. in, um, in the podcast in series one, and won't in series two. But those Dark Soul attacks were genuinely frightening. When you read about what happened, it was it was such an obvious and frightening precursor to what was coming next. Yeah. Uh, and I still think there were lessons to learn from those. So, so just plenty more detail, I think, in the book. Okay, so that's the uh, the book, The Lazarus Heist, published by Penguin Business, uh, out very soon. Uh, and season two of the Lazarus Heist coming out on, on podcast uh, also very soon. Uh, got a specific date for that? No specific date, but we're saying later in the year. It'll be late, later in the 2022. Year. Yeah. Okay, so, so we'll have to be patient. Uh, thanks once again, <laughs> Jeff White, for coming on the NK News podcast. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Uh, to our listeners, you can follow Jeff on Twitter at JeffWhite247. That's the right uh, handle, isn't it, Jeff? It is, exactly, yes. Is there also a handle for the Lazarus Heist itself? Uh, hashtag Lazarus Heist. If you search okay. for that, you'll define it. Yeah. Um, and obviously, if you look at Series 1, you can subscribe to Series 1. Uh, and obviously, you'll be updated then when we have Series 2. Excellent. All right. Thanks once again, Jeff. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News subscription, take a look at our NK Pro platform, which offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can inquire about access or free trial membership at membership at nknews.org today. Also, if you have feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, go to Arius Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast, and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks for listening, and listen again next time. <laughs>